Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about accountability. So I guess I want to ask you, Laura, what is your definition of accountability and how do you think it functions in culture right now? I think it is having a relationship with your actions that relates to the appropriate consequences for your actions. Like an important direction for our conversation today is talking about how who is held accountable for their actions and why and who isn't held accountable for their actions and why because I do think accountability applies more to certain people Mm -hmm. (laughs) and in certain places. But I like that you framed it as a relationship with because it is action verbi. Accountability is like, I think it's best thought of as a process rather than a Mm -hmm. noun, like just one kind of outcome. For me, accountability and availability go hand in hand. So the people who can be held accountable are accountable because they're available emotionally and socially and intellectually, and they're present, right, in a way where there is an accountability that can be asked of them. Like there is a sense of respect or remediation even, right? Not just, you know, a pat apology, but there's some sort of remediation that they're willing to undergo as a result of the fact that their, you know, actions were harmful. I mean, I also think there's a certain amount of like knowing whether you will be held accountable or Mm -hmm. not. And so like there is a certain situation or relationship with your action where it's more immediate because you know that consequences may not apply to you or you know you'll get away with something or you have like a feedback loop from your environment that encourages your behavior and you don't have to think about whether like who it harms or who you're affecting with your or who it benefits Mm -hmm. i mean that's the thing i think about the way that power works around consequences is that it's mystified both in the positive and the negatives. The people who benefit from a lack of accountability are the ones who don't see that they're benefiting it, right? They worked hard for it. (laughs) They pulled themselves up from their bootstraps, right? They were the individual tinkerer, the inventor who is solely responsible for an outcome, right? There is this disassociation from accruing benefits as a result of privilege that I think goes hand in hand with a dissociation from consequences as a result of failure. So, you know, I guess I see it two ways. I see ways interpersonally where accountability is not available Mm -hmm. and not preferred, and also structural ways where accountability is mystified or impossible. So maybe it helps to talk about the interpersonal first, just sort of in the day-to-day interactions between people at work or in intimate relationships where accountability is really difficult. And I see that emerging as a result of privilege, whether that's racial privilege for white people or hetero privilege or um, able-bodiedness or whatever. That, I think, short-circuits the ability of marginalized people to ask for redress when harm occurs, right? So if racist things are said all the way up to 
you know, bonuses not being given to promotions, not being given to hiring policies that are hardcore discriminatory to right those sorts of things that are interpersonal environment. I feel like there are a whole host of things that happen in the interpersonal realm that prevent marginalized people from holding people with power accountable. I think it goes the other way too, right? Where there's massive amounts of accountability mm -hmm. for people of color, marginalized peoples. I mean, over-policing works that way. School-to-prison pipeline works that way. All of the structural anti-blackness, anti-brownness in America works that way. Hyper-scrutiny and then hyper-punishment. Yeah, I mean, like I'm thinking about how we forgive certain people more like Brock Turner <laughs> had a bright future. Right. Um, and so he wasn't necessarily held accountable. Um, I mean, there is something about accountability that hinges, I think, very clearly on American exceptionalism as a construct of whiteness and white nationality and white statism, where white people especially are forgiven because they have quote-unquote potentials so there's this futurity to forgiveness for them that literally doesn't exist for any other class of people at all in the united states i think that that's extremely real right and so that means that for marginalized people who want to create structures of accountability the people in power read those structures of accountability that are that are in process as complaints, right? As mm. as just generic dissatisfaction with the way that things are, or it reads people of color as difficult, right? Which creates all these microaggressive structures then that get weaponized and deployed against marginalized people. Well, I mean, I see, we see that a lot in this moment where. Um, we avoid things that are not convenient or politically expedient. You know, we ignore the climate, we don't address that. And in fact, businesses aren't held accountable for making decisions that are actively mm -hmm. um, contributing to our decline in a livable planet. So we're recording this right as the Amazon has started to burn with all these intentionally set fires and as France has called for the G7 countries to think about creative ways to exert pressure on Brazil to manage their resources well. And of course, Brazil's response is that's colonial. And they're right, it is, right? All of the other colonial superpowers that, ha that right, have built their wealth uh, and in modernity on the extraction of resources from third and second world countries now want to manage from afar the way that Brazil manages its natural resources because they don't want the fallout, the environmental fallout from what happens when Brazil manages its resources the way that Bolsero wants to. That seems to me like a very good example of how accountability is impossible because on the one hand, nobody's really going to be able to hold Brazil accountable. That's like fundamentally not a thing. And on the other hand, the demand for Brazil's accountability absolutely ignores the lack of accountability that the U.S. has as the global polluter on Earth and that the, the industrialized countries have since the Second World War. And so both sides are so out of the conversation because they want to avoid 
any real scrutiny on their political histories or their political desires. Yeah, I mean, the United States has like this obsession with American exceptionalism, but all of it was based on behavior that was exploitative and violent. We haven't been held accountable for that and we erased it also. So we continue to, we never were accountable in the first place and we continue to fail to make reparations for that behavior or even admit it in a way that grapples appropriately with how we were able to acquire the resources that we do have now. Um, and so it's hard to hear the like um, reflection about uh, America being great and wanting to go back to that because it involves so much bad behavior that was swept under the rug. Yeah. But I like what you're saying about reconciliation because all of the words that cluster around reconciliation as part of accountability hinge on truth and truth telling. And I think that that's probably where the rub is with accountability. People who don't want accountability, countries that don't want accountability, um, groups that don't want accountability don't do truth. So you are going to see less truth telling, right, as a function of accountability avoidance, right? So that's everything from fake, you know, the claim of fake news and just boldface lying to the camera all the way to gaslighting as a way of manipulating the perception of the truth by the people who are being harmed by withholding the truth. And that seems to me really important because it's very hard then to have any kind of social boundaries if, the, if there is not some agreed-upon notion of truth-telling that is a common social good and a goal of a, of a community or a country or an organization or a relationship. I mean, that, that's part of what's so detrimental about not holding Donald Trump in particular accountable for his behavior. And there's a whole host of it that needs to be held accountable for from sexual assault to compulsive lying. Um, but because he's not held accountable, it's hard then to hold other people accountable. For example, Brett Kavanaugh. Like if we held Brett Kavanaugh um, accountable for his sexual assault and we held that kind of standard for a justice of the Supreme Court, how do we not also hold that standard for president because they're the same people because we've never held that standard actually well, no, but it benefits both of them <laughs> page he, and clarence thomas he didn't try and name another justice you know he didn't try and replace brett kavanaugh as a right. nominee nominee right because that yes. would have been him holding brett kavanaugh accountable yes. and if he holds brett kavanaugh accountable that is double standard <laughs> because he is holding him accountable when he doesn't want to be Oh, yeah. It's a non-desired outcome. Accountability. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. I think, you know, I think that there are a lot of strategies that people who don't want to have accountability employ as a way of shirking responsibility for their actions. One of those, I think, is charm. And so you see this, I think, with a lot of the elite white men is that they develop all of these, like, you know, charm strategies that mask their violence, especially their sexual 
violence. Um, and I mean that not just about rape, but I mean it all the way to the more mundane, just like being extremely aggressive about male sexual desire and about aggressive heterosexuality, especially in the workplace, but also in other relationships. Beyond just boldface lying and um, a refusal to be emotionally available or honest about oneself or the goals of one's organization or whatever, is also this um, kind of mask, this mask of, of, of charm that is also Janice-faced, right? It's speaking lies out of both sides to anybody who wants to hear. This is just like telling people what they want to hear and then blaming them for their dissatisfaction, which they can only read as complaint, not because they can't manage the truth-telling that accountability entails. I see also like a weird group think, like cluster behavior, um, where there was a whole ecosystem of people who didn't say anything about Harvey Weinstein, for yeah. example. Mm -hmm. um, because if they did, then they wouldn't get to... Work. <laughs> right. Or also, if you're a man, like, you know, there was a, there's a whole system of, like, frat culture where you can be shitty and you don't call out other guys for being shitty to women because then... You also can. Yeah. <laughs> if you perpetuate that culture where there's zero accountability, then you get to also benefit from it in certain ways. I mean, I just think that when people complain as a form, as a initial form of redress or an initial ask for accountability, they get read as being damaged, and then they're read as non-ideal witnesses to behavior so they can't be heard so christine blasey ford was heard by women who and other folks who have had similar experiences as a credible witness as a credible interlocutor but was also just dismissed as somebody who could bring any accountability because the structure of power so totally favors violent people in control that it's almost as though the objection is what exonerates the bad behavior. I mean, I think also about Monica Lewinsky. Hero <laughs> among, among women. Yeah. We've defended her on the we podcast have. forever. Yeah. Also, I mean, she's just totally fire on Twitter right now. Just like so. Oh, she's hilarious. Yeah, she's great. I look at her. Like, I, I, when people are like, oh my gosh, my life is going to be ruined. I made a mistake. And I'm like, God forbid you're a 22-year-old intern, intern at the White House, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, she's a person who knows how to apologize when it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, and to grow. And I can tell you who is not able to do that. I mean, how does Bill Clinton get to remain president and Monica Lewinsky is eviscerated on all ends of the spectrum? I mean, the impeachment, I think, is a separate question about legacy, which is where I think real accountability happens, you know. I think that the smear campaign the Clintons led against Lewinsky was trash, obviously, and was a grotesque replication of patriarchy that Hillary was 100% complicit in. And so the notion that she should be read now as some sort of like magnificent feminist is such total bullshit to me. You know, that also seems to be separate from the fact that, yes, she can do her job well, but she also, she did workplace fucking mobbing. 
That's what they did. The Clinton White House workplace mobbed Monica Lewinsky. And they tried to overwhelm her so that her truth could not be told and so that their competing lies would be upheld. And there was plausible deniability about the fact that, you know, they had had a, a sexual relationship. And that is terrible. It's also quintessential white liberalism. It's also quintessentially American. It's also whiteness, peak whiteness. It is so much about exonerating the potential of the president, right, in his political acumen. It's the same thing that's happening with Trump. It's exactly the same same thing. I mean, neither of them are capable of apologizing. No. Trump denies everything. Yes. And in fact... So does Clinton. <laughs> and so does... Yes. Both of them. Both of the Clintons. And in fact, asks for an apology back, you know, about the Mueller report. I mean, there's a detailed record of unfavorable behavior on his behalf. And he's asking for an apology because they to investigate what should rightfully have been investigated like whether justice was obstructed i mean but at the end of the day at a structural level accountability seems to be about property right so all of the major liberal interventions let's arbitrarily pick 54 because that's brown versus board of education from brown v board to ronald reagan all of the major federal interventions on civil rights right regardless of which groups they they appealed to were about creating accountability structures around education and housing and transportation and you know interstate commerce and the like and both Reagan and Trump, as as part of the same continuum, the entire thrust of neoconservatism is about destroying any kind of accountability for abuse of power. That's the goal of the thing. It's not a secondary goal. It's not like, you know, in pharmaceutical ads, they call them side effects, and I like to just call them effects because <laughs> they're causal, right? The effect of the thing is to undo accountability structures so that it's easier to aggregate power and money and property, period. That's the end goal. So at the end of the day, all of the micro stuff that's happening interpersonally, whether it's microaggressions or whether it's gaslighting, all of that stuff scaled up to the structural is fundamentally about how to avoid accountability and suck up as much property and disenfranchise as many people as possible. Period. That's the goal of the thing. I think that's especially clear after the financial crisis of 2008. Like, literally no one was held responsible, <laughs> practically, for um, dealing with toxic loans. And in fact, many of them were bailed out at the expense of ordinary taxpayers who had nothing to do with creating obscure financial but it's structures. it's not just that it's happening with the farmers right so these the trade war with china and the tariffs and the attempt to undo nafta regardless of how you feel about nafta and there are good reasons to have historically opposed it uh all of that is also the same sort of thing we're gonna massively increase tariff prices so to shrink the market for U.S. egg goods, right, soybeans and corn and whatever, 
Then we're going to bail out the farmers who now have all this excess product that they can't sell or liquidate at a fair price. It is the biggest transfer of wealth in the lifetime of anybody on earth right now is what is happening right now. And it is in the mechanism that is moving all that wealth is an avoidance of any sort of social accountability. And that means the failure of checks and balances, and that means the imperial presidency, and that means a massively understaffed White House, and that means, you know, an overpowerful Senate, and that means Citizens United, and that means the Electoral <laughs> College. All of these are structures of avoiding accountability. Almost all of them were set up to avoid the accountability of slavery. So there's a sense in which the lack of truth-telling, especially in the American context, but not exclusively so, is so colonial and so anti-black and so intrinsic that it's the reason why Afro-pessimism and pessimistic philosophy is so vogue right now. Because it's like, this is not a bug, it's a feature of American exceptionalism. It is foundational. Thomas Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia is like, well, it's very hard to be a white-landed gentry owning the slaves and, you know, making babies with them with the slave rape. That is basically the excuse for all of the atrocities and genocides that the U.S. has participated in since the colonies. So it's very hard to see a way out of it. Like, either as a structural assessment of power from the view of the nation or interpersonally because, you know, people who have structural power, white people especially, heterosexual white people especially, benefit from it regardless of their political persuasion. I, I do like the black intellectual work that is making it clear that slavery has... Is modern. Is hyper-modern. Right, yes. And the projects that are underway to make it a more visible structure to kind of undo some of the erasure that uh, happens about slavery. The uh, New York Times 1619 project um, that just came out this week is great work, but it's hard to see a way forward when all of that can be dismissed as, you know? Yes. Um, and when there's like blatant disregard for the truth or for um, science or intellectual validity well and you know I, i've been thinking a lot my timeline has been blowing up about jay-z's deal with the nfl and about i've been thinking a lot about corporate quote-unquote philanthropy as the way that people see a quote-unquote way out of structural accountability and i'm just here to tell you that if you think that the corporations are going to check the quote-unquote government from its excesses, you are not paying attention because they are the same people. It just seems to me that people don't understand that government and business are the same. They're intertwined, right? If they think that they're somehow separate entities that have competing interests when really it's all about interest convergence. And so... I've been kind of been I've been enjoying the memes about David Koch dying this week. Um, you know, sort of billionaire arch conservative neo fascist. 
who bought out all the state legislatures in the South, right, and across the country and completely decimated Kansas for the last 15 years. And it's like that kind of hyper wealth is preventing the culture from moving ahead and curing cancers and you know going to the moon and whatever we want to decide is valuable progress but it's the hyper concentration of wealth at the convergence of government and industry where the worst excesses of this lack of accountability are found the government does a tremendous amount of contracting private business in order to complete work that is traditionally the responsibility of government, but those private businesses that they contract don't have any responsibility to the public and they have far less oversight than they should have. Like there's no regulation. So the government is contracting a ton of these private prisons, concentration <laughs> camps, yeah, yeah. healthcare providers. No oversight. There's zero regulation and that's cheaper for the government. Charter schools on the front. <laughs> but it's extremely deleterious to the public. But they want it that way because that's why they're union busters, right? Mm. Because they don't want any kind of oversight or any kind of organization or any even just like the wage guarantees to get in the way of what is fundamentally a politics of extraction. They're fracking all of the wealth and all of the resources out of social good after it had been financed by public dollars. And so when I'm saying this is the largest wealth transfer in human history, certainly in the US, that's what's happening is that taxpayers are paying money to go to public goods that are then being given in, in contracts or subsidies or bailouts to corporations who are getting the money both ways, whether they succeed or fail, right? Lee Iacocca, I'm looking at you. Anyway, it just <laughs> seems to me that that is a it's like agent smith in the matrix it's how whiteness toxic whiteness replicates itself is through these massive wealth transfers that take money away from social welfare programs and the social good where they're distributed right where both the resources and the risk are distributed more equitably and they're siphoned out to the top to use as a cudgel against any kind of government accountability or call to public good work by the government. Mm -hmm. That's why I don't like socialism as an answer <laughs> to um, this problem because I don't also trust the, the government to take over <laughs> all of that because I also don't think they'll be accountable. So I think if you're going to pursue justice and if that's the goal of the Democratic Party in this election, then it has to be about accountability, creating accountability. Well, it's interesting that you say that as a political strategy, because that's really what happened to Nixon, is that corruption is where the outrage drove the interest convergence with the GOP after Nixon's reelection to create some convergence for impeachment. Without corruption as the meme, there wasn't enough outrage over Vietnam. There wasn't enough outrage, right, over over his policies. And it was mostly about abuse of power, right, and his refusal to submit to Congress um, the tapes and obstruction of justice, right? So it's, it's going to be very interesting to see where demagoguery and corruption intersect. 
in the 2020 election, not just the Democratic primary, but in the actual general election, because it just seems to me that it's going to be very hard to for the Democrats to win this on a policy platform because America is so grossly undereducated. Foreign policy doesn't win a presidential contest against a sitting incumbent president. And I think the only thing that could be a variable that changes that is if the economy tanks again, like it seems like it's poised to do, mm -hmm. and we hit a massive recession in the middle of the campaign. In some ways, that is, I think, inevitable. And also, you know, that's probably the best timing possible so that a bunch of Republicans jump ship and the down ballot gets a lot more interest, especially mm -hmm. the ones who are doing more justice-oriented radical politics around climate change and, and racial justice. But at the end of the day, there won't be apologies. Nobody's going to go to jail, right? I mean, there is no sense that a reconciliation or even just a reckoning is coming, which I think is contributing to so much social and political anxiety. I mean, any attempt at protest is short-lived and <laughs> results in effectively zero policy change or change in leadership. And the amount of people in power who have been held accountable um, in a very public way is slim. This conversation is happening while Hong Kong is a beacon of what social justice praxis looks like as a national orientation of accountability. The difference is that Hong Kong is much smaller mm -hmm. in landmass and it's hyper-urban and the U.S. is mostly rural and extremely diffuse. So while there are symbols like that happening, right, uh, against authoritarian, anti-justice, predatory nationalism, it's not replicable in the U.S. in the same kind of way. I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, we do spend a lot of time talking about these problems in an American context, but China is an incredibly brutal and authoritarian regime, and they definitely have even less accountability there than we do here because they have a complete control over the media. I really just worry that it's a distinction without a difference because of the you know convergence of journalism and advertising and you know the refusal to enforce antitrust law. But I, it just seems to me that one of the things that prevents meaningful change is this liberal notion that America has been good in the past, mm -hmm. that it's been great, that it's been fair, that it's that justice is a thing that has been a national ideal. I mean, it's the liberal idealism of that, I think, is a hurdle to actually getting the material conditions changed. And so it, even though... I'm happy to lampoon the neocons for their hawkishness and their brutality and their torture policies and their bullshit invasions and their destabilizations of regimes. There is so much blame to go around. Like the Democrats refusing to have a climate change debate for part of their primary structure is so grossly unethical and fucking revolting. I mean, I really, I just really can't with it. I just really yeah. cannot with it. Well, that's what you were saying earlier about it's going to be hard to have a policy conversation in the primary. People don't care. And also, it's expensive. And if you ask practical questions about the policy, eventually you do have to uncover the fact that it's tremendously expensive. And part of that is because we have to pay for stuff 
that other people discounted earlier. You know, people did stuff the wrong way for a long time because it was cheaper. And now it's, we're paying that cost retro retroactively. And so, but it's a hard thing for people to swallow. Like how expensive is this policy? <laughs> all of the major policies, healthcare, climate, like it's all wages, federal wages, job guarantee. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's funny though, because Jill Biden had that quote this week about Joe Biden. It's like, he's a little hard to swallow, right? Which is like a blowjob joke doing double duty is just like gross dissatisfaction with liberalism and was a moment sort of un of unmasking how terrible Democrats mm -hmm. are too. And I, I don't know. I mean, there is a sense that there's going to have to be a different kind of ex existential threat to get away from the teaming. I'm on the Republican team. I'm on the Democratic team and actually focus on a different kind of vision for what the U.S. is or does. But at the end of the day, obviously, I'm more, much more compelled by the pessimists about, <laughs> about the enduring nature of anti-blackness and structural white supremacy than I am on the ability of a especially white candidate to re-envision America for, for Americans. Given that we want that of the president instead of of the people, as we see that as a unidirectional kind of thing, I just don't know that it's possible to create a different sense of accountability among the people, even if there is a private will to do it. And so I think that accountability is part of why we started the podcast, because Sheryl Sandberg has avoided it so well in her career and wants to increase accountability on women through her junk feminism. And it seems to me that leaning back is still continues to be the only paradigm where we can shift our focus away from the static narratives of our greatness and really focus on a different way of arranging power in a way that increases transparency and intimacy and um, gives people the tools to create oversight and regulation as a necessary part of justice and equality. <laughs>